0: This morning, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at a couple of the descriptions that Jesus uses to describe his followers. He says that you are the salt of the earth. He says that you are the light of the world. He says you're the city on a hill and, uh, and that you are a light within a house that lights the, the, the way so that people can see where they're going. Um, these descriptions describe ways in which his disciples do a couple of things. One is stand out. In the ways in which they are unique and, and different from the world around them, but not just stand out, but also stand out in a good way. Like, they improve the world around them. Because of the way that they live, the world around them becomes a better place. And as such, they become an example to the world around them as to uh, the way things ought to be. There's, um, there was a, a Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate. Uh, He was, after uh, Christianity was legalized under Constantine, and after, uh, within the Roman Empire in the 4th century, a lot more people started becoming Christians, he became emperor, and though he was raised as a Christian, he began to repudiate it. He actually uh, began to hate it quite a bit, and and he uh, again unleashed persecutions and, and things like that against the church. But one thing that was frustrating to him, and this is really fascinating, I think, was even in spite of all of his efforts to destroy and eradicate Christianity, it continued to grow. And he tried to figure out the reason why. And what he came to realize was that the church was full of so many good charitable works and a help to the poor. And there were so many people who relied upon the church and widows who were cared for by the church. That, that if any people who were going through a hardship were looking for a source of hope. They wouldn't find it in him. They would find it in the church. And so what he did is he went to some of the pagan temples and to some of the priests and said, you guys need to start doing charity for the poor. And he started using the the budget of the Roman Empire to support charitable works and to support things so that he could compete with the church about how to care for the poor. But think for a moment about what that means. It means that because the church cared about people, All of a sudden, the Roman Empire, in an effort to destroy the church, has to start caring about people. And all of a sudden, the church itself and the witness of the church is changing the world around them for good. And I think that's one example, but there's many like that, where even the state has followed the path of the church, and in so doing, the world has improved because of the call of Jesus towards his disciples. I think that's what it means to be a city on a hill. You are an example of what the rest of the world should be doing. And it's a great tragedy... When the church forgets that vocation and the church begins to look at the cities all around them at the bottom of the hill or look at the, the kingdoms uh, from the mountaintop that Satan showed to Jesus and to think, actually, that's the better way to do it. I'm going to align myself with that or we're going to do things that way. And all of a sudden, because of uh, the influence of the world in the church, the church forgets what it's called to be. You know, that's that We talked about Constantine a second ago, with the legalization of Christianity, and then with uh, the the declaration that Christianity would not only be legal and tolerated, but eventually became the, the religion of the Roman Empire, one of the great downfalls of that was Christianity went from being the persecuted religion to... Christianity became, in some instances, the persecutors themselves of the pagans or of the Jews or of those who rejected Christianity. And then you started seeing pagan temples torn down. The ones who would tear down Christian churches now are tearing down pagan temples. And all of a sudden, there was a reversal that took place because of power that was gained, and the church started to look more and more and more like the state, or the church started to look more and more and more like the empire or the kingdoms of this world, and that, that's something that in any environment the church needs to be aware of uh, and the church needs to be cautious about. Uh, the closer you align yourself to the, to the entities of this world, the grayer it becomes and the harder it is to see how different the church is from this world. If the church begins exercising, i mean, which it has throughout its history, things like capital punishment. Well, where did it get that from? It didn't get it from Jesus. It got it from the state. You know, that, and now that all of a sudden, when you look back at the history of Christianity, there's some really dark and, and nasty spots. And it's not so much because the church was worse than everyone else. It's because the church acted like the state. I mean, if you, you talk about the Inquisition or you talk about uh, um, the Crusades, when you have in the name of Christ people going to war, Well, all kingdoms go to war. That's what kingdoms do. That's what nations do. That's what empires do. But the reason that's such a dark spot in church history is because we are not supposed to act like the kingdoms of this world. and We're not supposed to be like them. What has happened is people, instead of looking at the city on the hill... We've just joined all the other cities down at the bottom. We have joined all those kingdoms that, that, uh, that were shown to Jesus that, that he rejected in order to establish his own kingdom. And all of a sudden, now, when people talk about church history, it's not always about how Julian the Apostate began to care for the poor because the church did. Now it's often, well, look at what the church did as soon as they got power. They ended up turning into everyone else. Um, It's essential to remember what our vocation and what our purpose and what our task is. And it's not to look like everyone else. It's not to support one political party and oppose to the other ones. It's not to support one kingdom of this world against all the other ones. It's to support the kingdom of Jesus Christ and support the kingdom of heaven. And that will look different than anything else that this world is doing and offering. And it should look different. It will look like the light of the world. It will look like salt of the earth. It will look like a city that's on a hill. But, you know, all of those ideas about standing out, about being something different so that the world sees it and ends up honoring and glorifying the Father who's in heaven, those are all ideas that existed prior to the Sermon on the Mount. Like Jesus says, all of those things. But if you go back and you read passages in the Old Testament about Israel and about Israel's purpose and vocation in the world around them, you see a lot of similarities. Israel was called to be a light to the nations so that the salvation of God would reach the remotest parts of the earth. That's Isaiah 49. Like they were supposed to be the light of the world and Jesus calls himself the light of the world and the church is supposed to be the light of the world. We are supposed to be that pathway that is illuminated that leads the world to something better. And that's that's our purpose, sure, but it's also Israel's purpose. And so that light when it's seen, it doesn't bring glory to the church itself per se and it doesn't bring glory to Israel, but it brings glory to God, who established Israel and who set up the church and, and built it through jesus and, and so when you look throughout the old testament one of the one of the common ideas that will pop up is that Israel existed for a purpose israel's purpose there there are several of them I think you can find but one of the purposes of ancient israel and and of of uh, God choosing them and freeing them out of Egypt was so that they would be that example to the rest of the world about how to be the people of God. So that your Babylons and your Assyrias and your, uh, your Egypts and your, your, uh, the Philistines and the, the nations around them and the Canaanites and all that, they would be able to see a better and a different way. And so because of that, you see these descriptions that are used like a light to the nations, those are the nations, and Israel is supposed to be the light among them so that they could see something better. Um, in Exodus 19, after freeing them from Egyptian uh, slavery, after bringing them through the wilderness, uh, uh, the, this is before the 40 years in the wilderness, but they had to go through the wilderness. And he gave them manna from heaven, and he gave them victory against the Amalekites, and he gave them uh, water uh, and uh, uh, from from a bitter pool, but then also from a rock. And And you see, all of these great ways that God rescues them, saves them, provides for them, cares for them, you get to chapter 19 and they arrive at Sinai. And they are about to receive the Ten Commandments. That'll happen in chapter 20. They're about to be offered a covenant. They're about to enter into a covenant with God, which happens in chapter 24. But in chapter 19, God is reminding them of what he has just done for them. And he's telling them and explaining to them what he's going to call them to be. He rescued them on eagles' wings from Egyptian slavery and bondage. He was their savior and their source of hope for the future. He is the one who is their provider. He's the one who's done everything for them. And he did so to make them something special, to make them a kingdom of priests. It's a really important phrase, a kingdom of priests. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you a kingdom that has priests. He's going to make them a kingdom of priests. And I think what that means is not just that they're a kingdom and they have the Levitical priesthood, but that their role as a kingdom is to be priests. Now, what priests do is they are in-betweens. They are representatives from God to man and from man to God, and they are the ones through whom you offer your worship. They're the ones through whom you learn of God and all of that. So if Israel as a nation is supposed to be a nation of priests, who are they priesting to? Uh, Well, I think the nations around them. I think that's kind of what their, what their uh, vocation became is for them to be representatives of God to the nations around them and for them to teach the nations around them the way to grow closer to God. And, and so through their actions and through their calling and through God's victory through them, they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. In fact, if you go all the way back just to Abraham's initial call, He was told that he was being chosen and God was choosing his family that through his seed, all the nations and all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the whole thing from Abraham through Exodus, through the book of Isaiah, it has the nations, the Gentiles, the outsiders in mind, whether it's bringing them blessing, whether it's being their priests, whether it's being a light to them, whether it's bearing God's name for them. In in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter twenty, you know we have the this famous list of Ten Commandments, and there's one of them that I think we get perhaps somewhat right, but I think we also sometimes miss a little bit of the point of it. Uh, there's a, there's a fascinating book and some good research done uh, by uh, a scholar Carmen Imes, uh, who has a book bearing God's name, and it's a great book. But uh, there's quite a bit of of uh, good stuff being written on it of how we might have misunderstood one of those commandments, which is do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Um, We often hear that or read that to mean don't say God's name in vain. Like, don't say his name flippantly. And then we usually, by his name, mean something like the word God or the word Lord or any of the words used to describe him in the Bible. Um, now, his name in the Old Testament would be something like Yahweh or Yahweh. That, that would, that's his covenant divine name. Um, he is called Elohim. He is called God. He is called these other things. But his name is actually is that. But we've kind of expanded it to include all of those things that describe God. Now, I'm going to say I think that's good. I don't think we should flippantly refer to God or just use his name as part of our you know, regular, you know, you stub your toe, don't say, don't call out God. You know, like that's, I don't think we should be doing that. But I think there's actually something a lot deeper than that going on in that commandment, uh, in the Ten Commandments. The word for do not take or do not bear the name of the Lord in vain, um, that word is not the same word as speak or say. It's actually a word that means carry. You see it used uh, in the Bible like when the priests are supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. They're bearing it. They're taking it. They're carrying it. That's what the word means. And when he's saying don't bear or carry or take the name of the Lord in vain, I think you have to realize that God is placing his name within these people. They are the people who are known by his name. Not any other nation. The Egyptians aren't known by his name. And there's the whole story earlier in Exodus of God revealing that name to Moses. Moses, uh, when he is called at the burning bush, and he doesn't know, he says, "Who, who shall I say that you are? You have Exodus 3 and you have Exodus 6. Two different stories of the revelation of the divine name of God. And then when you get to Exodus 20, he has freed the people and he's bestowed them with his name. And he's saying, don't carry this in vain. I think you carry the name of God in vain by calling yourself a worshiper of Yahweh and then acting like the nations that don't worship him. You know, wearing his name, but then acting like everyone else. It would be like calling yourself a Christian, but being just as much a a sexually immoral person and and a drunkard and a swindler as anyone else might be. And all of a sudden, people hear the word Christian, and they think, that's what a Christian is? And you have taken the name of Christ but you've dragged it through the mud. You, you've worn it, I guess, but you've worn it in vain because you, it didn't fulfill its purpose. It was supposed to call you to something better. It was supposed to cause people to honor and glorify God, but instead what it did was you carried the name with you and you made it worse. You, know, you, you, you harmed the cause of Christ by carrying that name. And so after saying, don't worship any other gods, don't make any other gods, carry my name with honor. Carry my name not in vain. I think what God is saying is, don't worship the other gods, and as you worship me, and as you bear my name among the nations around you, do so with honor. Do so with obedience. Do so with integrity. It's more about what word comes out of your mouth when you stub your toe. It's about the life that you live as someone who's called by God's name. And, uh, and I think that's, that's, that fits into the whole vocation of being a blessing to all of the nations, of uh, being a kingdom of priests, of being a light to the nations, and of bearing God's name. If you just keep looking at the name of God throughout the Old Testament, you'll see over and over and over again where... The children of Israel will sin; they'll worship idols. Jerusalem will be destroyed by Babylon, or something like that. And the prophets will talk about how they dishonored God's name. Or God will say something like, I- "I'm going to have to save you for my own name's sake." Or um, even even in uh, the, you know Psalm 23, where He says, "For your name's sake," you know, it's like so much of what they do, they do for the sake of God's name or His reputation. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel is praying that the Babylonian captivity would end, and they can return. And he says, save Jerusalem and save us and let us return home for your own namesake. You know, it's like when, when Israel wears God's name and then they sin and then Jerusalem is destroyed, what does Babylon think about their God? I think he's not as powerful as us. Nebuchadnezzar is more powerful than their God. Our gods are certainly more powerful. And all of a sudden, God's name is brought low because they wore his name, but they wore it in vain. And so all of that is to say that Israel has a task and a vocation to be separate and distinct from the nations around them and to elevate the nations around them by being a light and a blessing and bearing God's name well to them and and all all of these different descriptions. So when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says things like, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. He's telling them to be, in essence, the type of people that God called Israel to be, but they so often failed to be. I want you to continue in that. And also remember, he is talking to Israelites. So they, they're going to know this language. They're going to understand this calling and this vocation. And by the way, when Jesus begins his, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, and he says, hallowed be your name, what's interesting about that is, uh in the Lord's Prayer there in Matthew chapter 6, uh, when he says, uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's hard to tell in English, but those are all second-person uh, second person singular imperatives. What that means is he's actually telling God what to do. Not like giving God commands in a rude way, but saying, you sanctify your name, meaning make your name holy, make it great. We want you to act in such a way that your name is honored. We want your kingdom. You Bring your kingdom. It, have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. That one is, is written more as a command, but they all are. They all have the same structure. And so even when he says uh, that hallowed be your name, he's talking about God honor and sanctify and glorify your name. And and the way in the Bible that God does that is through his people, when his people are obedient to him, when his people uh, wear his name well. And so when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is telling his disciples all of these things, he is reiterating the call to Israel. If you keep reading the New Testament, you'll see that the church is called a royal priesthood. That's the same language as Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests, kingdom, priests, royal priesthood. It's the same language. We are a holy nation, uh, separate and distinct. Uh, You can see that we are called to wear the name of Christ with honor in, in the book of Acts. As the church is going out, they start being called by the very name of Christ. They start being called Christians in Antioch. And we are called to be the lights of the world. All of the language that is used for Israel is also used for the church. In fact, Paul uses uh, the, the very command given to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, to describe what his whole ministry is all about, what his mission works are all about, is that the time has come through the seed, which is Jesus, to bring about blessing to all of the nations. So that's why he goes to the nations, to bring the goodness of the blessing of Christ and to bring that salvation to the ends of the earth. So all of these things are interconnected, and the church is not... I wanna word this well. The church is not something just new that popped up out of thin air. The church is part of something that has existed for a very long time. Israel, God was not, God's plan was not just to give up on Israel forever. The church is a continuation of the call of Israel, but it's an expansion of it to include all of the nations. It's not that Israel was done away and now we have the church. The church is continuing. First, I mean, through people like Paul who actually were Israelites, you know, it still is a part of Israel, but also the church is an expansion for the whole rest of the world to be joined as brothers and sisters into Israel so that we all become one family. And that is the mystery of the gospel. According to Ephesians chapter 3 and and other passages, it was that all Jew and Gentile alike be welcomed into this one family of God, brothers and sisters united by Jesus And and even if you speak different languages and live in different places and are separated by different borders and all of the kingdoms of the earth around the mountain, that you see we might live in different parts of them, but we all become one family in Christ. The final scene of Matthew is Jesus back up on a mountain telling his disciples to make disciples of every nation. All of those nations that Satan showed him, he says, go to them. And make disciples of me from every one of those nations. That's your call. That's what, our, that's what we're going to be. And so, all of this is, is showing that we are a continuation of the purpose and vocation of Israel. Only, even as Gentiles, we are fellow heirs, welcomed and adopted into that family to be uh, one family with God. As that family, we are supposed to show the world something new, to show the world something light to be salt and to be that city set on a hill. I'm going to look at one example of how how we can do that or how in the Bible the early church did that. And one of those is through radical generosity, is how we can show the rest of the world how to live. We can be that city that's set on a hill, but also we continue right in with the tradition and with the call and the 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 life that God had given to Israel to do, the church is supposed to continue in that, and if it does, it'll be a light to the world. So, uh, look with me at Deuteronomy chapter fifteen. Deuteronomy chapter fifteen is a really fascinating chapter, and it deals with something that uh, that I think sometimes we don't think about as much. We certainly don't talk about it as much, but it's really important in ancient Israel. Um, It's difficult to know how often they actually practiced it. You know, sometimes you can see something written in your Bible and you think, oh, okay, that's what they were supposed to do. But we don't know if they actually did it, you know, regularly throughout their history. Uh, One of those is Jubilee. Jubilee is something that's a beautiful idea that's taught in the Old Testament, but we don't know historically if they actually practiced Jubilee very much. But we'll talk about Jubilee here in just a second. But Deuteronomy 15 talks about the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year. Now, we do talk a lot about Sabbath day because that pops up a ton in the ministry of Jesus. He's always getting condemned because he did something good on the Sabbath. Um, And so we know that, you know, every Saturday is, is the Sabbath. The last day of the week is the Sabbath. It's the day in which God rested in creation. And so God has Israel rest in imitation of him. It's also for Israel, the Sabbath day is a reminder of the freedom that he gave them from Egypt. Uh, They were slaves in Egypt where they had to work seven days a week. They didn't get a day to rest. And so every Sabbath day is a reminder that God freed them from the labor and the toil of slavery and gave them something new and gave them new life. And so Sabbath day is an imitation of God. In, in the creation. It is a reminder of God's gift of salvation and of his freedom from Egypt. It's also an equalizer among all of the people, uh, from kings all the way down to the, the people who are in poverty. They all share in this day together. It's a day for families to spend time. It's a day of worship. It's a wonderful gift and a blessing that God gave to his people. And in the New Testament, that's that's what Jesus means when he says. Look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning the the Israelites or the Pharisees had become so strict in their application of Sabbath tradition that they made Sabbath a burden forced on people rather than a blessing given to people. It's like... People were created to serve the Sabbath. And he says that's not what it was like. God created the Sabbath in order to bless people. And so the Sabbath was made to bless your life. And it was a good thing. Don't make it into a bad thing and condemn me for helping someone on the Sabbath. Like, that's never... If you read through the Old Testament, you will never, ever, ever see the idea, Now, okay, now that Sabbath is here, you better not help that person. Now that Sabbath is here, you better not heal that guy. If you're using Sabbath to neglect and to harm people or to ignore people in need, then you've misunderstood Sabbath. So that's Sabbath day. And by the way, something that's interesting about Sabbath day, not only was it for kings and for people who were in poverty, it was also for foreigners who are in the land. It was also for animals. Even your animals get a day of rest. Like everyone, God cares about all creation. But Sabbath year is also a thing, meaning every seventh year, there was a year of rest. And uh, what happens in that year of let rest is that the land rests. You are not supposed to go out there and keep uh, working the fields, but you let the fields rest. And you let them grow, and you let them just be wild for a year. And, uh, and that was sub- sub- supposed to be part of the Sabbath year. And then every seventh Sabbath year, so after 49 years, seven times seven, you have Jubilee. And in Jubilee, you have... Uh, the, the land that was sold during the last 49 years, it gets returned to its original borders. So in ancient Israel, land, if you, if you were given land, your family owned land, it was yours perpetually from generation to generation. Now what could happen is you could fall on some really hard times and your land isn't producing and your family is starving and you need money. And so you tell your neighbor, I'll sell you my land. And the neighbor looks at your land and he says, Okay. I'll give you this money, and uh, you can sell me this portion of the land or, or however much it is. But do you know how much the land was worth? They had to calculate it out. Say you are 13 years from Jubilee. Well, that means there are going to be 13 harvests until Jubilee happens. And so the land is worth 13 years of harvest. Because once Jubilee hits, you get your land back. Once Jubilee hits, even if you sold your land it goes back to your family, and everything is restored. And so, you know, one year before Jubilee, your land is only worth one year. It's only worth one harvest. You know, 48 years before Jubilee, that's a rough time to sell it, because you're going to go 48 years without it. But, uh, but at that time, your land is really pricey, because it's 48 years until Jubilee. And so, and so, Jubilee was a time of great rejoicing for someone who had fallen on hard times, and maybe was in debt, and their debts were released, or had become an indentured servant, and they were freed from servitude or they had sold their land and their land was restored to their family so it was a great day of of jubilee that's what that's what it means you know the people were rejoicing however if you had done really well and you had collected everyone's land it might not be so good a great you know so great of a day because you end up losing it all to give it back to them but it was an equalizer among the people so that you didn't have a five hundred year period in history where one family just grows and, grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and everyone else gets more and more and more impoverished. It kept it kept things it kept that type of inequality from happening in ancient Israel. So it was it was a beautiful part of their law. that kept uh, you know food for everybody and all of that. But during these Sabbath years, this is Deuteronomy fifteen. There was uh, there were people who had gone into debt. And they were freed from their debt on the Sabbath year, every seven years. So if you look at, for example, Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 3. Sorry, Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 3. It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a remission of debts. Uh, This is is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor uh, and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. But then verse 3 says something interesting. From a foreigner you may exact it, but your hand shall release whatever uh, of yours is with your brother. So he says, basically, you're going to uh, release the debts that you, have, uh, that you have, uh, have been accrued during that last seven years. That is for your neighbor and your brother. He says it's not actually for the foreigner. You can, you can still uh, exact their debts, but not from your neighbor. And I think there's something interesting about that. One, that, it is a great blessing for the Israelites to, uh, to have that. But it also does keep in mind the idea that there are special blessings for one another within the family of God. I think you see a similar type of idea when Paul says, uh, do good unto all people, especially those of the household of faith. You're supposed to love and do good and care for all people, but there's also something about special privileges and blessings given to your brothers and sisters in Christ, given to the city that's on that hill. You know, you're going to treat that city differently. You treat the kingdom of heaven differently than you treat all of the other kingdoms. You treat the city that's on the hill that you're a part of different than, than the other ones. And that's not to say you ever react in like hatred or violence or anything like that towards those other cities, but there are special privileges and special gifts and special amount of love that you give towards your your family in Christ or towards your fellow Israelites. And so you do see that idea set up right there where you are going to be especially generous towards them. But by being especially generous towards the family or towards the city or towards those who are part of your community of faith. That in and of itself becomes an incentive for others who see that to want to be part of a family like that. There's there's actually benefit to doing that because you're not doing it and saying, and you can't be part of the family. You're saying, and you can be part of these blessings also. You can be part of this goodness also. It is an incentive to want to enter into the family when uh, when you see that type of generosity. But when you continue reading Deuteronomy 15, notice verses 4 through 6. God promises some divine blessings for Israel if they prove to be obedient and faithful to him. He says, however, there will be no poor among you. Keep that phrase in your mind. It's a really important one. There will be no poor among you. Since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandment which I am commanding you today, as the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations but you will not borrow, and you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule you. God is going to bless them so that they never have need to borrow from the other nations, but they can lend. They can be generous, surely, to the other nations, but don't uh, rely on those nations or or borrow from them. And he also says that there will be no poor among you. That's a really important idea, because he's going to say something that kind of sounds Like the exact opposite in the next couple of verses. But notice right there, he says, there will be no poor among you. Then, uh, verses 7 through 11, he says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, okay, so we just said there's no poor among you, but then he says, but if there is a poor among you... uh, One of your brothers, in any of your towns of your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for the need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, Hmm, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing, that he may cry out to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin for you. So, what he's saying is okay, so there's going to be no poor among you, but if there is a poor among you, if there is someone who's in need, solve that problem. <laughs> help. <laughs> like, like that's, that's how there's no poor among you is because as soon as it happens, you have enough generous people who are part of the family, part of the community, part of the city on the hill. You're going to help each other out. And he says, and don't start thinking, oh, wait a minute seventh year is coming up pretty soon, and I'm going to have to forgive all these debts. Um, yeah, I'm not going to help you right now. Meet, meet me after the seventh year is over, then, then I'll do it. It says, don't do that. that would end up, you would end up misusing the gift of the seventh year, and you would use it selfishly, and so you would refuse to help someone because you know the seventh year is coming, and that would be a sin. That would be misusing what God has uh, the gift of the seventh year that he's called you to have. But then you keep reading in verses 10 and 11, And he says, you shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Kind of sounds like being a cheerful giver. Um, Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Notice verse 11 and how different it is than verse 4. Verse 4 says, there will be no poor among you. Verse 7 says, if there is a poor with you. And verse 11 says, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. So, so how are both of those things true? There will be no poor among you. Occasionally there might be a poor among you. And there will never stop being the poor among you. Well, I think the way that happens is you live in a society that's part of this real world where poverty happens. But you also live in a society where people love and care and are generous towards one another. So that when that poverty does happen, you have people reaching out to help that person who's impoverished. There are, there are laws in ancient Israel about when you are uh, harvesting your crops, you don't harvest all the way to the edge. Because there might be poor people who need some of that. If you drop anything, you don't pick it up. There might be poor people who need that. Don't go a second or a third time through. Uh, Make sure that uh, you leave some out there so that poor people can come and and be able to benefit from it. That's what Ruth is doing, by the way, in the book of Ruth. When she goes into Boaz's field, he is following the law of caring for the poor. So she, as an impoverished foreigner who's a widow, is able to go in there and start collecting food. Like, that, that was a way of helping one another out. Well, This is also a way of helping one another out when he says, Don't be tight fisted, but open your hand and freely give to your brother. Because you'll always have poor in the land. Verse 11 says, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. That's how you don't have poor but you also always have poor. As long as you have the poor, you have the generosity of their family, of their their community, of their fellow Israelites who will be there to lift them up and to help them through it and to bear each other's burdens through it. So that is one way that ancient Israel was called to be a light to the nations around them. What's interesting about that, and we'll close with looking at this, uh, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter four, and you actually see the seeds of it Starting in Acts chapter 2, when the church first starts there in Jerusalem, and you have people selling their possessions and giving it to one another. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, remember... Israel had the task to be the light to the nations, and the church has the task to be the light of the world. Like the the same way that Israel is supposed to stand out unique as a nation, the church is supposed to stand out unique as the kingdom of heaven and as as the city that set on the hill. And one of the ways that Israel was supposed to do that was through their radical generosity towards one another. Well, that same thing is repeated for what the church is supposed to be doing. And so, in chapter four and verse thirty-two. It says, "In the congregation of those who believed were all of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own alone, but that all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And abundant grace was upon them all for, and notice this phrase, for there was not a needy person among them. Do you know what that is? That's an actual direct citation from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 4 that says there will be no needy among you. The second part of that is exactly used by by Luke right here as he's telling the story of the early church. Remember how Israel was called to be so generous that there was no needy person among them? Well, the early church is doing that. And he says, and there was no needy person among them. And uh, he says, For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute them as people had need. So what you're having here is a a city on a hill in Acts chapter 4 that eliminated poverty, at least for a short time. How did it do that? Uh, not because of laws coming from and telling them everything to do, but because of a radical generosity and love for one another. One that was supposed to permeate ancient Israel, and probably at times did. You see it with Boaz, you see it with certain people, but now you're seeing it among the early community of Jesus followers in the church. And it's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture that, uh, Like any other where the church is doing something really good, if you look throughout history, you'll see highs and lows. You'll see sometimes in some places where some people do this really well, and you'll see sometimes in some places where people don't do this well. But this is one example of many ways where the church becomes the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city that's on the hill, where we show a better way forward. One of the ways you do that is by caring a little less about your possessions and a little bit more about your brother. Israel was supposed to do it, and if they did it, they would have looked different than all the nations around them. The church is called to do it, and if we do it, we'll look different also. We will be seen as a place of radical love and generosity. And you know what happens? People who are not part of it, who see that, might just want to become part of it. If you want to help evangelism, Show genuine, sacrificial, and generous love towards one another. And people will say, I want to be part of a family like that. I want to experience love and kindness in that way. I want, and I think what you'll also see is people who become part of it will not only want to benefit from it, like receive help, but once they do, I think people will also want to give help. I think that's one of the, the beautiful parts of the church is it so often calls people not only to receive but also to give and to, to share with one another in a life together that's unique and that's different than the life that you see so often in the world around us. And so you read through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is, is giving unique ways to live. And he's calling his disciples to live in that. But it sounds a lot like what Israel was called to do. And it's a lot like what the early church started to do. And it's a reminder to each one of us of what we are called to do. Uh, If there's anyone here tonight who would like to be part of this family, who would like to be part of the people of God having your sins washed away and receiving the greatest gift that there is, which is the gift of the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives you, unites you, and gives you hope of eternal life, then please let that be known. You can be baptized tonight and have your sins washed away in his name. If we can help you with that, please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.